0: Hi, this is Lawrence Krauss and welcome to the Origins Podcast. This episode is with my friend, uh, the remarkable scientist, writer, all-around good guy, Steven Pinker. Um, Steven is uh, a brilliant scientist um, and and a really brilliant writer. Uh, I learn something from him every time I I, I read read anything he's written. And I've enjoyed our friendship and uh, what's nice is, in, my, in this case, familiarity has not bred contempt, quite the opposite. The, the more I get to know Stephen, the uh, more impressed I am with him, and the luckier I feel to know him. In, in this podcast, which uh, we've, been, we've been talking about doing a podcast together for a long time, but um, this podcast follows on his recent book, Rationality. Uh, and, and we talk about that, but we also talk about Stephen's background, what got him interested in psychology and language. And his thoughts about writing in general, and what he thinks about when he writes books. Um, the new book, Rationality, is is a book that really surprised me. Actually, when I read it, it wasn't what I expected. Uh, it's it, uh, it's it's about the reasons we are rational, the reasons we aren't rational, and why we should be rational, and what rationality is, what 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 it, it corresponds to, and it's not, it's um, it's specific and detailed with lots of good examples and. Uh, really, a study of a lot of interesting aspects of of um, of logic and reason, uh, including I was very proud and pleased to see that Stephen spent a long time talking about Bayesian analysis, which is something the, the average person doesn't talk about much, which but which is really at the heart of modern science, and really that kind of thinking um, often leads to results which are. Quite unexpected, and and demonstrates in some sense how our how our kind of evolutionary training is not necessarily the best training to be completely rational. In any case, we talk about all of this in, in the podcast, and and uh, uh, I found it fascinating, and I hope you do too. Once again, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, I hope you'll subscribe to our YouTube channel, and um, if you want to support the podcast, which is provided by. The nonprofit foundation, the Origins Project Foundation. You can do so by also subscribing to us through Patreon. In which case, you can see these podcasts ad-free. No matter how you see this or listen to it, I hope you enjoy, Stephen Pinker. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for agreeing to uh, do this with me. It's uh, it's been a while since we've been together, but I find it's never failing to me that whenever i spend time with you i'm enlightened so thanks
1: (laughs) thank you lawrence good to be here
0: good and um you know i want to there's no it's quite clear that what i want to do is talk about your new book and that's and that's probably what you're most excited about um but i but it is the origins podcast and i want to i want to talk about in some sense how you got there and where you came from and uh and and i want to begin at the beginning you and i have already talked about the fact that we have a variety of kind of parallelisms. You're, 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 you're only four months younger than me, it turns out. Um, we both grew up in Canada uh, to Jewish parents and um, both moved to Boston to graduate school and then moved back and forth between MIT and Harvard, although in opposite directions. But that's, as, that's as, as, as as I think about it, that's about as much of a parallel as there is. You 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 grew up in Montreal, I grew up in Toronto. And one thing that I, I never I never asked you it occurred to me is is the is your interest in language does it stem at all from the from the the fact that you're of a, from English parents in a province that was French and this the need to sort of try and speak two languages did that impact on you at all when you were younger
1: You know that it would be a good story but it's yeah. not really true so. I, I I I didn't know if it was but I just wondered yeah. I mean you yeah, were probably the the uh closest the only connection might be that in uh McGill University, being in a bilingual city, had the way that many departments will specialize in areas that are locally relevant. They had a pretty strong program in psycholinguistics and um, uh, linguistics and psycholinguistics were big at McGill when I was an undergraduate. I think that's the closest, especially since my interest in language it was not so much from um, practical problems in the best way to learn a second language and how to, are there any advantages to being bilingual, but really more deeper questions like what is language? Uh, how did it evolve? How does it work? How do kids acquire it? And I came to language of, uh, uh, just in my autobiography, really from uh, reading a, a long form article in the Sunday New York Times magazine in, I think it may have been 72, on. Mm-hmm uh this this young upstart of linguistics named noam chomsky who was had turned the field upside down was part of the cognitive revolution helping to overthrow behaviorism as the reigning philosophy of psychology yeah. this this being the doctrine that uh any reference to mental uh constructs thoughts beliefs rules plans images memories was unscientific because they can't be measured and science is only about things you can measure yes. and so science of behavior. Sci- first of all, psychology should be a science of behavior, not a science of mind, because the mind is so a uh, you know, superstition, like mm. leprechauns or fairies. You can't, you know, how can you measure the, a mind with an instrument? Yeah. Therefore, you should it should concentrate on relationships between the current stimulus situation of an uh, organism, which you know again you can measure with instruments, its history of learning, and then you measure the responses. So that was kind of what dominated psychology in the middle decades of the twentieth century. Yes. And, and then uh, this article pointed out how Chomsky was one of those who overturned that paradigm and the mind was a respectable thing to study scientifically again uh, i think it was that article plus uh, books around the home and uh, exposure to cognitive psychology in college and then university that it, it just seemed tremendously exciting that you could actually study the human mind scientifically
0: yeah well uh, it it is I, I i i was fascinated when i was younger my there's another difference between your my my life and yours your parents were professionals, so I, I wanted to be a neurosurgeon because I figured that's as close as you could get to the mind. I didn't know there was anything else. Um, but your parents, your father was a lawyer and well, your he mother was a, was a... Sorry, go on.
1: Yeah, so my father was, he was trained as a lawyer and um, <laughs> he actually uh, stopped practicing pretty early in his uh, career. He resumed it in, in, in midlife. And from in, in our generation, the, the, the boomers, the, uh, the, the yuppies, it's okay. almost inconceivable that if you had a law degree that you would um, go into business instead. But my father sold uh, he, he sold um, uh, women's clothing. He, uh, he was a traveling salesman. He sold tennis wow. dresses and lingerie and, and these items that I don't think anyone has mm-hmm. heard of these days called house coats and house yeah. dresses that yeah. the housewives would wear in the 60s. Yeah. And, you know, and I... I, I uh, for me, like he had a law degree, why did he sell house coats? And the answer was, it was um, you know it, it, it was a way to make a living. And in his generation, children of immigrants, the the professional degrees and, and being a professional just wasn't a thing. It was if you were a mensch and if you could uh, make a living and support your family, it didn't really matter what you did. In the prestige of you know, being a lawyer versus a, a a salesman, just didn't register with them. Yeah. and I think. You know, then in our generation, the thing yeah. was you got to get you know your MBA yeah. or your doctorate yeah. Yeah. or whatever. Well,
0: mine was he, doctor or lawyer. What MBA or doctor was just too academic. It was my brother a lawyer, me a doctor. That's what my mother won.
1: Oh, uh, same, same. Yes, same with me. But the um, uh, so then then I think when my father got into his fifties, he was sick of slapping around the province of Quebec with sample bags full of clothing, <laughs> and he did uh, he reopened he then he he. Uh, uh got his renewed his law license and then opened to practice uh late in life even then it was a kind of thing he did on the side but he was more again in, in that generation yeah. kind of entrepreneurial business oriented not particularly impressed by professionals he mm-hmm. was mainly a kind of a landlord he had a, some mm-hmm. rental properties and um so i i consider my background not so professional more small business and i want to I had another uncle who had a law degree. Who and again, instead of practicing, he went into his father-in-law's auto parts business. (laughs) Uh, My other uncle um, got uh, an engineering degree, but he went into his father's business making neckties. Wow! This is just this was the I think the the values of that uh, the 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 first. Native-born generation of Jewish immigrants. Yeah, it was you know. Can you can you make a living? Can you support your family? That was
0: that's, that, that's, that was a, That was a, yeah. That's exactly right. And for and and for me, I guess the, they wanted the next generation to be professionals because they thought it might make a better living. At least my mother uh, thought that. Uh, it's interesting. My father sold shoes, so we're closer than. than oh I no, thinking. I think we are. I think we're actually <laughs> we very close. And, and indeed, my
1: mother said uh, early on, she said, "Why why would you go into psychology? Go into psychiatry?" Uh, um and then uh you know you don't have to be at the mercy of the academic job market you know you can uh, you can do everything that a psychologist does but more and besides isn't psychology isn't that just cats and rats geez, uh, which which it actually was in her kind of in her generation because she was a student during the behaviorist reign. she said you don't want to go into psychology it's cats and rats well she but
0: she had got, she had a college degree she was
1: eventually she have a college degree. vice principal and what was both, her degree what was her background in um, She. Um, she 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 had a a degree she then went became you know, in in the 50s she did what everyone did she had children moved to the suburbs right. um did not did not work when i was a child mm-hmm. then uh, and again like that generation uh went uh, got restless when her kids started to be teenagers when the feminist revolution happened and so she then got a uh Went back to school, got a master's degree in counseling, became a high school guidance counselor, and then the vice principal of a high school. And okay. for many generations, in fact, it's funny, just yeah, she has many generations of her students of people I meet in all walks of life. Oh, that's but nice. Last night I gave a guest lecture at a course in Harvard. And the instructor said, Well, your mother probably doesn't remember me, but uh, <laughs> oh, <I> was- <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, I bet but what she said to you is very I mean, you know, I remember when I got my first job at Harvard, my mother called my wife at the time and said he can still go to medical school what does he want to get chalk on his hands for 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 me with the idea of physics was somehow sitting at a blackboard and getting your chalk on your hands so it yeah just so didn't we're, like we're, a real job. we're
1: actually uh yeah we're really from, from very similar backgrounds yeah.
0: okay well maybe one of the reasons that we relate at least i i certainly enjoy you so much yeah. but who which one of in terms of did either of them encourage you um you know you had interest early on in psychology i guess in terms of sort of being a quote-unquote scientist did either of them have a stronger influence on you or they just let you go in whatever direction you wanted?
1: Uh, I probably had more, my my mother had more of an interest, uh, more, more of an influence on me. She herself, <clears throat> when she was a, um, a, a, a master's student in counseling, I, at the same time, was an undergraduate in psychology. We actually oh. were at McGill at the same time. We would sometimes commute in together and she, oh. and we would often read, uh, both of us read in psychology and, you know, Piaget uh-huh. and uh, uh, um, uh, cognitive behavior therapy mm-hmm. um, so our interests overlapped of the two of my parents both very smart but my mother was more of a reader more of a, a more intellectual of the two mm-hmm. and so I had much more um, uh, kind of intellectually in common and uh, in fact to this day she's 87 and I dedicated rationality to her oh, wonderful. and uh, she she commented on a draft as she uh does uh, with with most most of my books largely because i uh, kind of think of my reader as some as as a similar term someone who's yeah. not very smart but not an academic intellectually curious and my uh, you know I'm, I'm, i suspect this is true of you as well i treat my readers as um uh, kind of uh, equals but people who just don't know what i happen to know and yeah, i know to exactly. show them things that they can see with their own eyes, um, granting them the respect of being curious and willing to put a little bit of mental work in. And my part of the bargain is that if if my readers are willing to put a little bit of mental effort in, then I will uh, reward them with a a, a real understanding. They shouldn't be puzzled after putting some thought into it. you know, I try not to leave stuff out or to make assumptions
0: or, or appeal to authority or, or uh, appeal to authority, yeah. 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 So it's
1: uh, exactly so it's you know, for someone like Bayesian reasoning, the, yeah. the, the theorem of the Reverend Thomas Bayes, which uh, we'll get
0: to, it's which is fascinating. You know, Change signs
1: sometimes that may seem intimidating. Oh my god, a theorem, yeah. Uh, it's got you know three terms in it, so it's not yeah. that. not that complicated. You do really have to give a little bit of thought to it, but I felt that um, it is something that any intelligent person who's willing to think a little bit can grasp. And in fact, one of the arguments I make in the book is that in in some domains, we already are Bayesian, even mm -hmm. though we don't think in terms of the, 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 the algebraic formula of the theorem, but our intuition is Bayesian. In
0: certain ways, and in certain ways, as you also point out, it's Bayesian, but not Bayesian, because the priors are often things we want to be true rather than uh than than than, than are true but then we'll get nice. to bayesian now bayes has changed in my own field of physics it changed everything and i even even though i've used it i still have to always go back and kind of remember its basis every time i think about it it's and okay. and that's why i was so pleased that you 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 actually did that uh, i i you know my late friend steven weinberg um Used to say in his first book, you may remember the first three minutes. He said he his his reader he thought of as a lawyer and a cunning lawyer, someone who didn't have a background in science but was going to question the arguments and 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 put work in and 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 I think that's the idea. If you, and if you can, uh, if if people are willing to work through it. Um, then then they should i mean they may not have a mastery but at least an understanding and i find that to be a wonderful characteristic of your books. And i think that's Uh, that you know that's uh, that's the the best you can do and um uh yeah is it it, it's a it's a it's a shame that um it's interesting to me uh well i wasn't going to go in this direction but we've both written a lot of books and i'm always amazed that somehow uh, um Maybe psychology is less intimidating than physics, probably because well, that, I, think
1: a, I think that's an understatement.
0: Well, yeah, for me, it's it's funny because for me, I I think I did as I will talk about I do physics because it's easier than neuroscience. But <laughs> but uh, but the notion that you should be willing to puzzle through in something like physics is something that you know reviewers in major magazines they that's not you know they're willing to puzzle through in psychology or maybe history economics. But in, in physics, I'd just rather say it blew my mind, and 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 it's and and it's and so I'm I think in psychology it's important to present those those puzzles. And you do actually begin the book with puzzles, which is a wonderful thing. I have to say the book was quite different than I expected. But I'm I'm not quite there yet. I want to talk about how you got there, and I promise within the next seven minutes we're going to get to the book because because I know we have so much to talk about in so little time. I wish I had three times the time to talk to you now. One thing I did there's some puzzles about you though that still surprised me first your phd was in experimental psychology in vision right is that yeah. right okay First visual, of,
1: visual cognition figure
0: 3d versus
1: yeah me- mental imagery yeah
0: and one thing i was going to ask is since chomsky had changed well one thing that occurred to me when you're talking since chomsky had been in some sense kindled your imagination about the psychology and the, and the innate cognition instead of instead of uh, uh behaviorism you chose to go to Harvard rather than MIT. Was that, um, and, and Chomsky was in MIT. Was that a, just, well,
1: he's also in a different department. He's not, yeah. he's, he's a linguist. Yeah. Uh, so I, so. I, I absolutely wanted to be a psychologist. I, I, linguists, uh, it's it's a different field. Sure. Different methods, different questions, different theories. Um, I did apply to MIT's department of psychology at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I kind of agonized, went back and forth. I'm not even sure I made the right decision, but, uh, and they they were very as mit was uh, and and, uh, and still is it's kind of like they asked me well do you think you'll be able to raise your own money to support yourself I mean, that's, <laughs> okay. just, that's just that's the mit way
0: yeah 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 yeah
1: whereas at harvard it was we'll you know we'll we'll pay yeah. you full fare all the yeah. way and i didn't have to think about that when i went back to mit as an assistant professor mm-hmm. Uh-huh. uh you know i had to raise half my salary from grants that's the oh, mit style the
0: mit way okay when i yeah well i i didn't have that dilemma because i applied to both harvard and mit but i only got into mit and okay. um and uh happily you know they offered me money in physics it's more if physics is a richer field so they tend to pay your way but then yeah. of course it turned out i came i came with money from canada and they immediately deducted that amount from what they were offering me oh, so same here
1: same here yeah, no, same. I, had, I had a uh, well, insert was uh, Now they call it an NSERC, but it was an NRC at the time. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But, but, well, we both have to... Okay, but but you made the transition from visual cognition to language.
1: Well, I actually studied them both in grad school. Oh, okay, I didn't uh, know that. My thesis was on uh, um, the representation of three-dimensional space in mental images, when we Mm -hmm. imagine a scene that isn't physically present, like if our eyes are closed. Uh, do we imagine it from a particular vantage point, a particular perspective, or is it kind of an, uh, in an object-centered coordinate system where there's no viewpoint? And I argue that there there actually always is a viewpoint so that visual, sp- mental 3D space is actually more like what David Marr called two-and-a-half-dimensional space. I was uh, going to
0: say, I read about two-and-a-half-dimensional and I was intrigued by that. Was yeah, what the hell, what so. the
1: hell does that mean? <laughs> I mean it's, you know, it's a bit of a whimsical yeah, term. Yeah, yeah, the idea yeah. is that this is a... Uh, kind of a matrix or a a, a graphic representation where the horizontal and vertical dimensions are represented by, you know, basically by by different cells, different Mm -hmm. entries, uh, but depth is represented by a quantity. So it's not like we have uh, three-dimensional voxels, like a kind of mental sandbox, but rather we we, uh, have, what we see is always a set of surfaces And we are aware of how far away they are and what orientation, Um, but it is not like a, um, like, like molding clay. Uh, Anyway, that was the thesis. But at the same time, I wrote a theoretical paper when I was in grad school on language acquisition, where I kind of uh, kind of worked my way into a conclusion similar to Chomsky's, but coming from a very different direction. uh, You, I mean, you know, Chomsky, well, you've interviewed him a number of times. Yeah. The thing is, for you know, he's um, a totally brilliant, seminal thinker. But he, you know, he tends to be uh, treated as a kind of a guru. He is, uh, you know, almost almost a cult figure. He's got his a theory that's kind of you know idiosyncratic and personal, and it's his vision. And um, I was never part of that cult, but I did kind of, to my surprise, kind of wandered into a similar conclusion just by looking at. AI and mathematical models of language acquisition. That mm-hmm. is, um, so studying how kids learn language was a, a, a thing at Harvard when I was a grad mm-hmm. student. But I always thought it was very, all the discussion was very squishy. It was just like, they wrote down baby talk and mm-hmm. is it an active process? Mm-hmm. Is it a passive process? And I wanted a little more rigor. So I dove into algorithms <laughs> for yeah. uh, for learning language. Uh-huh. Uh, that is, imagine, a, and this this was a very Chomsky conception. He called it a what? Yeah. Le- LAD, language acquisition device. So the, yeah. idea, the input to this box is sentences drawn from any of the world's 6,000 languages. Uh, and that would correspond to what you hear your parents and, and, and siblings say when you're a little baby. Mm-hmm. The output is a, Chomsky uh, would call it a grammar, but we can think of it as an algorithm for understanding and producing. And so mm-hmm. the question is what's in that box? Uh, how do you go from uh, you know, several hun- a, a few million sentences that you hear from your parents to a um, a generative algorithm for speaking and hearing for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And looking at those mo- the, the models that were around at the time, the AI models, they the ones that actually worked had to have something built in uh, as to a, a, an overall expectation as to how language works. What are the basic What's the basic co- computational architecture? What are the basic units? Obviously you couldn't build in you know English or Japanese, but the ones that tried to do it just as a blank slate
0: mm-hmm.
1: were hopeless. and the ones that at least had some a pre- some priors you, could, you could mm-hmm. put in priors uh, were, were much more successful. So I realized, oh, that's kind of a, a roundabout way to coming to you know innateness. yeah uh, that is they are priors in a learning algorithm.
0: So they're hardwired priors uh, instead of, instead of software, I guess. And, 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 but you, you, um, and, and so this innateness, I think is relevant to this. The reason I'm bringing it up is I think it's relevant to the rationality issue that, that, that I, I, as I say that I was fascinated by in your book and have, I had, I have 60 questions, which I, which I've pared down to eight or 10 or 12, and we'll see, but, but this innateness, is interesting to me because where i see i mean i'm not an expert of course but the difference having spent time with chomsky and listening to you is that both agreed that there's some innate innate uh, capability for language which is an essential part of being human but chomsky uh, surprised me when i when when i first heard him say this is that his argument is that lang- language was more useful for thinking not then communicating and from what i gather as you you're you're more of the viewpoint, which seemed rational to me in advance, that language was developed for an evolutionary basis for communication. Could you comment on that distinction between those two for me? Just to yeah, eliminate?
1: I've actually never understood that claim. It just seems you know, patently false based on some of the basic design features of language, such as mm-hmm. there are words. <laughs> now, why would you have to learn uh, for every concept a word with a pronunciation if it was all in your head
0: well i think he argued that 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 the ability to create an infinite number of sentences expanded your ability to be conscious in a sense and, no, no no yes no, no I, i'm
1: i'm i'm all for that that okay. that that would be a explanation for why thought is combinatorial okay if we're talking about language mm-hmm. why do you need stretches of sound For every concept, why do you need the whole component of language called phonology, namely the mapping of uh, of uh, uh, sentences onto um, articulatory commands when you speak and acoustic signals when you hear? Uh, If it was all going on in in the head, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't need that. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, you would need that. Would not be an essential part of language. It'd be an internal. A medium of communication, like a programming language, and you, you don't have to pronounce, you, you don't have to, um, pro, uh, machine code in a computer uh, mm-hmm. is not pronounceable. It doesn't have yeah. to be. It's going yeah, to I... be a total waste to convert it to and from um, uh, acoustic signals. Also, you wouldn't need the rules of phonology, a whole component of grammar, which Chomsky himself helped to Mm -hmm. um, define back in the 1960s, namely all of the little adjustments that we make when we speak that go into an accent, the the slurring of adjacent sounds. Now, these obviously aid articulation, but Mm -hmm. the fact that you articulate, it would be a massive coincidence if an inherent part of language was getting it out of the head uh, in an acoustic signal that other people just happen to be able to hear <laughs> uh, if language wasn't uh, designed for communication. Now, yeah. of course, I, I agree that there is what you, part of it might depend on what you call language and meaning that is, Chomsky might call it logical form, uh, that is the content of sentences, the gist, the the, the actual uh uh, you know, what synonyms have in common,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know, that obviously is what we think in. And, uh, but but as long as you distinguish that from say, you know, Japanese or Yiddish or Swedish Mm-mm. or Yoruba, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. that it seems to me that the common sense for you, what, what anyone would say when you say, well, gee, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so on the street why do we have language well to communicate
0: get, yeah, and they're yeah right
1: of course you have it to communicate
0: yeah it certainly helps yeah <laughs> um but it but you know i have often wondered i mean i think it it's it's hard to know what whether you can think without language i guess is the key question oh
1: you can definitely think without language I mean, you do
0: do when you think you don't you don't internalize words well,
1: you have snatches you use stretches of sound as short-term memory um, uh, representations but you don't think in complete sentences S- thought no. would be way slower if you did also writing would be uh, would not be a, a slog it would just be output yeah uh, kind of struggling for what wor- how what words actually express my thought mm-hmm. uh, we've got you know uh, going back to my, my thesis we've got imagery we think mm-hmm. in when we mentally rotate a uh, you know a cube or a, 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 a stick figure Uh, We're not describing it in words the whole time. Kids have to acquire language in the first place. And if they couldn't think uh, without language, Mm -hmm. how could they learn language? Uh, So uh, we know that from studies of non-human animals, that animals can solve problems. They can uh, recognize things. They can do technology. Language makes, uh, you know, exponentiates the power of thought, not only because it allows us to share thoughts with other people, and to think thoughts that would never have occurred to us on our own, but we can also use it—the sort of auditory and articulatory images of stretches of sound—as a kind of scratch pad to hold ideas while we're working through them.
0: Okay. Well, look. Okay, that's fascinating. And I, I'm gonna—I I'm gonna, wanna—I want to spend the last half of this on, on the on more more directed to the book in a sense. But I have to ask you one last question, just out of curiosity. When I was at Harvard, my favorite guy in the Society Fellows was David. Won the nobel prize for figuring out how cats see um was he in psychology um david uh, uh, i'm trying to remember his last name now um oh, but I, yeah david hubel he was also canadian He was um, also
1: he's also from montreal david hubel he's a yeah he's at the medical school oh
0: he's the medical um, did you interact with him at all when you were when you were doing your, your cognitive your
1: vision vision aspect i i i didn't meet him when i was a grad student oh Certainly okay every every psychology student uh, learns about the work of David Hubel and Torsten and Wiesel, Yeah, yeah, just absolutely fundamental. The, the, basically, it was, and, I, and to this day, I show my intro psych class his original film in which he made the discovery of the, basically the line detectors in sure. the visual brain of the cat. Yeah, the cat. It's an amazing little video. At least I think it's amazing. The students, oh. you know, I think they're amused that I find it so gripping. I've seen it like 50 times <laughs> and I find it as fascinating every time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's he, great well as he, long as you convey your enthusiasm to me that's a large part of teaching so yeah because if they don't understand why you're interested why would they be interested um okay but this rules the fact that there are rules for language and um you, you know i was thinking about your movement in writing from writing about language to eventually writing about enlightenment the better better angels of our nature and then enlightenment now was a move in some sense to try and ultimately. Come to what you know, what what I would say is rationality, which was what surprised me about your book. I I picked it up and I thought, okay, this is going to be another Steve Pinker book explaining why why um, rationality is necessary, but also why historically the world's getting better and what and 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 a social and instead, what I'm to my great pleasure in a sense, because I would have bought into that, but but but. Instead, it's a discussion or rather detailed discussions of, of rationality and cognition and the rules by which rationality is acquired or abused in humans. And 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 in that sense, it was such a unexpected pleasure to read and 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 and, and learning experience. So uh, let me just say that for those who may wonder what this is, it's quite um, I mean, it's much more psychological than than. Um, then uh, then, you know, I would think I, I tend to think of the better uh, of enlightenment now and better angels over nature as as trying to promote a a, a worldview that 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 um, may go against the grain, but is important. But but this is an expo- exploration of an of a of something that that is is interesting to define. And, and I want to begin with your definition, which, well, you have a variety of them. And I want to come back to it because it seems to me there's a circle in the book. Where you sort of begin and end, but what surprised me was, in some sense, you say that rationality is what allows you to get things you want. Or and, yeah. and, and 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 I and that's not what I would have. I mean, there's a there's a wonderful definition of it at the end of the book that we'll get to maybe if we get to it. Um, but you know that's fascinating. I wonder if you could elaborate, because because it seems to me sometimes it, irrationality also gets you what you want, and um, emotion sometimes gets to what you want.
1: Well, and, it's the way I put it is irrationality. You know, I don't think irrationality does get you what you want, although what you want could be irrational.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the key point. Uh, yeah. you, you, in fact, a large part of the latter part of your book is saying we are rational beings, but what we're but we're we're not ultimately we're using rationality in a local sense, and it doesn't get us yeah. what we need, want
1: globally. Exactly. Yeah. So the uh, the definition is related to the famous statement of David Hume that reason must always be a slave to the passions.
0: Yes, which, which I was going to want to focus on later. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is easily misunderstood as saying, well, we have no choice but to you know, to splurge, to, to bl- blow our stack, to uh, um, uh, you know, shoot from the hip, to, to uh, uh, mm-hmm. do whatever feels good. I, that's not what Hume meant when he said that. I think what he meant is, That that uh, reason always is a means to to an end. It's a way of getting something, but what you what that end is cannot itself be determined by reason. And the one way to think about it is if you if you um, kind of try to imagine what reason without a goal might be. You might say, Mm -hmm. well, gee, why isn't just you know using logic to deduce? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, new true propositions from old propositions. Isn't that rationality? Well, just imagine someone that simply spun out using the rules of logic, just spun out a bunch of true statements till the end of time, and they were strictly true logically. Like if one and one equals three, then pigs can fly. Well, that is true by the uh, they're both false, and yeah. if then statement is only uh, false if the premise is um, true and the conclusion is false oh. um so and, and you can then say oh yes and, and if you know if two and two is seven then pigs can fly if two and two is eight then pigs can fly mm-hmm. you know till the end yeah. of the time so you're just saying yeah. true statements forever and you're totally logical well is that rational i mean no it's something we say no no, no not, whatever rationality is it's not just saying true yeah. things
0: yeah
1: we call it i think we call it rational when there is, is uh, uh, some goal that we accomplish. I use the, the, the wonderful um, passage from William James, the uh, philosopher and psychologist mm. namesake of the building that I work in at Harvard, William James Hall, mm-hmm. where he said, the, um, we tried to c- contrast a rational entity from a, uh, a not rational entity. And he said, Romeo and Juliet, uh, Romeo wants Juliet as the filings want the magnet. And if no obstacles intervene he approaches her by as straight a path as as they but romeo and juliet if a wall is built between them don't press their faces against the opposite sides you know idiotically yeah. like the, the, yeah. the filings and magnet with a card yeah. romeo finds a way of getting you know, over the wall or around the wall the difference is that with a purely physical process a non-rational process the trajectory is fixed and whether it reaches an end just depends on how on accidents other on things are arranged right with a rational agent the end is fixed and the actual trajectories can be varied uh, indefinitely so that i i think is a good characterization of intuitively what we mean by rationality but you're right that it opens the door to using rational means to some indefensible ends. And I think a lot of public rationality that concerns us so much today, why is there so much you know, fake news and conspiracy theories, uh, is that people can want certain goals like uh, fortifying their side in a great, you know, in a culture war and making the other side look foolish and their side look wise and no- noble. That's a goal. It's a, it's a dubious goal, but it is a goal. And people can be Perfectly uh, rational, in attaining that goal, or the goal could be to uh, achieve status as a fearless warrior for your side in the great culture war. And so people will say, "Yeah, you know, go Steve. He's really he really stuck it to mm-hmm. the uh, to the conservatives or stuck yeah. it to the liberals." Mm-hmm. That that's a goal. Mm-hmm. If everyone uh, pursues that goal, we're all worse off. But people can be, unfortunately, you know, pretty clever in those goals.
0: Yeah, no, and well, it, that is a central premise, of the last part of the book, which I, which I do want to get to. Uh, actually, your distinction, uh, actually, in, in the preface of your book, you make that distinction between logic and rationality, which was fascinating to me when I, when I first made it, and you exactly that, that something can be logical, but not rational. And in fact, the beginning of your book, you talk about classical logic, just so we can be clear on what classical logic is, because classical logic can be a component of rationality, but it's not the equal of rationality. And I mean, if you're illogical, it's hard um, to be rational. Uh, right. I think that, so the converse is, is the way of proving the, the in fact, as, it, as you might've said in one of your chapters,
1: that's yes, the, the law case. Of con- the law of contraposition, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but yes, the, the, and the re- well, the reason that logic is can be irrational is that when you apply logic you may only appeal to what is stated in the premises. Yeah. And the goal is to deduce conclusions that are true if the premises are true. But you've got to forget everything you know uh, in order to do that. And in everyday life, even in science, it's never rational to set aside everything you know. Well, actually, yeah. sometimes it is. Yeah. Sometimes it's it is. Not in everyday life. Yeah. So I an mean, example is, you know, all um, all plant, product, plant products are healthful uh, tobacco is a plant product, therefore, tobacco Infrared. is helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So, you know, that's that—that uh, that is a, val- uh, a a sound it, inference. Uh, it's not valid because, in fact, not all, plant all plants. are healthy. Yeah. Uh, and we know what tobacco is, so we know to reject it. But if you were a logician, you'd have to say, yes, that is a uh, a valid inference, and and it, it does follow.
0: Hi, this is Lawrence Krauss. And I'm really happy to talk to you today on behalf of Audible. Audible is a leading provider of spoken word entertainment all in one place. I'm an Audible user and I also am an Audible producer. I've I've, uh, read a variety of my books on audiobooks that you can get through the Audible catalog. I find in my current position with the podcast that Audible has become even more important for me because I have discussions with many different authors and I have to read a lot of books and I find through Audible I can listen to a number of them when I'm otherwise doing other things like driving the car or working out. Almost any book I want to read electronically or in hard copy version, I can find spoken on Audible. So all in all, there are a lot of good reasons to consider joining Audible. And right now, uh, there's a pretty good reason. There's a promotion that Audible is, is uh, involved in, involving a new sort of masterclass uh, podcast about well-being and uh, and and ways that you can um, basically help yourself to to feel better. Uh, so go to audible.com/wellbeing. That's audible.com/wellbeing. But let me connect. I'm jumping around because I know we're never going to get in a logical order. Where do I want to get? But um, it's interesting you say that because in some sense, that's true. But then Bayesian conditional probability, which is so important, as, as you point out that, that, that uh, later well, after describing Bayesian statistics very well, point out that people are Bayesian, but, but as I said earlier, they take a prior, which is not doesn't correspond to reality. It corresponds to the reality they want. Isn't that very similar in some sense to, to an abuse of logic? In some sense, the conditional probability is really you're being irrational in the same sense you're being, while being logical, you're being irrational because your prior is wrong, which is really what, what in some sense, what, what's the problem with the statement about plants and tobacco?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that, that, that is exactly right. It's just the probabilistic equivalent of what we were just saying about logic. And now, in fact, yeah. go on. No, no, yeah. I'd so, you. in fact, a lot of you know, probability is related to logic, and that in that a lot of uh, uh, inferences in logic have a counterpart in probability. If you sure. switch from things are just true or false to the kind of Bayesian conception that you have degrees of credence in a hypothesis. Yep. So, for example, the fallacy of affirming the consequent in logic, mm-hmm. namely, p implies q. Q therefore P. You know we we know that yeah. that's invalid. If if uh, if you're a heroin addict, you uh, smoked marijuana. Therefore, if you smoke marijuana, you'll mm-hmm. be a heroin addict.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so that's the fallacy of affirming the consequent. In logic, the corresponding fallacy is confusing conditional probabilities. That is yeah. the probability of A given B with the probability of B given, B given a. a. But the
0: but the conditional probability is a lot like if then. But a yeah. probabilistic version of if then, what's the probability of if that then is then then occurs in some sense? So instead of being a rigid if then, it's kind of a, a probabilistic if then. Is I guess is a way of yeah, exactly. It's out.
1: almost like it's not not exactly the same as what they call fuzzy logic. Yeah, but it's uh, but you know it's it, it's it's related.
0: Yeah. Um, before we get on to there, I'm going to skip a lot, but you did mention Hume, and 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 I and you know I kept for the last third of your book, but you know your your book is structured into sort of the here are the components of rationality, let me understand them. And then the last part of the book is kind of what I thought that, you know, you had to address, as you say, this is the part you've been waiting for, because you think this is what people are going to look for, is why are we not rational, and, and sort of the more uh, so- sociological perspective of how this is implemented in the real world, or abused. And I, and I, and for that part of the book, I kept coming up with reason as the slave of the passions, the reason, ultimately, the reason we appear to be irrational and you're the eternal optimist, I guess, in a way as saying, it's not that we're inherently irrational. It's just that we're rational at the, but rational by being a slave to a passion, which may not produce a global rationality, but rather a local rationality is the way I I think global is societal or what, what's ultimately best for everyone or what ultimately is even best for you. You don't get, because you're thinking, you're still thinking kind of myopically.
1: Right. The, it's, um, no, I, I call it the tragedy of the rationality commons. Commons, exactly. Uh, related, and there is a chapter in the book on game theory. Yeah, One of which the is... classic results from game theory is that there are situations in which uh, a number of rational agents, each doing what is in their own self-interest, can end up worse off uh, than if they um, uh, made, made some some uh, sacrifice of their, their interests.
0: Well, that... Um, I'm going to interrupt you there. I'm going to try not to interrupt too much because I know people say I do, but I. But I. I we have a limited time. Otherwise, I wouldn't. But, but that's an incredibly important point, and I want to. I want to go there for two reasons. Because I want to address something that's clearly, clearly relevant now to the time we're talking, and also it, as it turns out, is relevant to the last book I wrote on climate change. This tragedy of the of the rational commons, in some sense, that makes when you when I read your book, I, 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 I you know, I have good, I have. Optimistic days and pessimistic days, but the notion, but climate change is a clear example of that dichotomy between what may be good for you, apparently, and what's good for you, ultimately. So yes, why don't you talk about that Why don't you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it's the tragedy of the carbon commons. Yeah, just to just exactly. to uh, um, get straight on what the tragedy of the original tragedy of commons was. Sure, this was the the hypothetical case in which uh, you, uh, there's a town commons and for every shepherd it makes sense to bring his sheep out to graze on the town commons because he gets you know because his sheep get, get fattened if everyone does it they can denude the commons faster than the grass can grow back and then everyone is worse off uh, com- compared to if they in fact each one has an incentive to allow his sheep to graze as many of his sheep as possible to graze as much as possible but that makes everyone worse off so we talked about An analog of that in the case of rationality, namely, everyone might pursue the goal of achieving um, hero status within their own tribe um, with the result that that the public sphere is just a a war between different tribes over uh, each one plugging their version of the truth and each member of the tribe getting brownie points for how well they can advance the the, yeah. the fight and we're all worse off if we end up with just the, the the belief of the strongest coalition as opposed to the true belief that is if we all kind of cooperated to collectively pursue the truth which is what you know science at least in theory ought to do mm-hmm. now the carbon commons is yet another anal- uh, analogy with the, the the sheep on the uh, on the town commons namely uh it's every individual within a society has the incentive to enjoy all the benefits of fossil fuels. You get to you know, drive in an air-conditioned mm-hmm. car, and you're, you're toasty in the winter and cool in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and if you stint on that, if you uh, kind of uh, get wet during a rainstorm and at at waiting for the bus, um, you're not you're not saving the planet. Uh, you yourself unless everyone else does. So it makes sense to take your car instead of of waiting for the bus. The problem is if everyone makes that decision, then everyone is worse off with a uh, unstable, dangerous planet. And which is also true, of course, of countries that each country would be best off if all the other countries conserved and they used uh, uh, abundant portable energy and fossil fuels to power economic development. Um, If everyone does it, then we're all worse off. And that's why you know there have to be these global agreements or within a country, um, you know, carbon pricing or other regulations to shift the incentives so that people, when people and countries opt for what is uh, most advantageous to them, everyone will do what's most advantageous to the to the planet.
0: Yeah, in fact, and you know, it plays into the game theory argument that you're it, when you're doing a game, you're trying you're, you're trying to decide in some sense whether um, what you're Will do. And if if um, if 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 playing by a certain set of rules uh, and if both of you do it, it's good for both of you. But you realize if they don't, then then they're going to win. And so it's an each country says, well, I can I can start, um, you know, conserving or 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 having or, you know, restricting my GDP um, uh, with, you know, using fewer cheap fossil fuels. But what if, you know, China or what if some other competitor doesn't, then I better do it quickly, because if they do it, I'll, you know, and it's and it's that it's that game, it's that and that's why, to, you know, in games, you need rules to to and and you often crave them as you, as I think somewhere in the book, you say, you know, hey, I really give me a rule that stops me from doing what I would do naturally anyway. In some sense, it's like it's like Rousseau, right? We're born free, but we live forever and change. If you agree to be part of a society, you're saying, give me the rules so that. I know in the long run that there'll be peace and security and I'll be happier, even though I can't go out and steal money today if I need it and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, um, the social contract. The social contract. of, social contract of yeah. Andrew, So, yeah, uh, proposed, namely, I will uh, sacrifice some of my liberty as long as everyone else does as well, since we're better off if we aren't all preying on each other and exploiting each other. I forego my all the advantages of exploiting you on the other hand i'm better off if i can get everyone all of you to forego your prerogative to exploit me so we're all better off that way exactly
0: you know there there's so much i want to talk about it's literally so little time but this notion which which i guess i i I hadn't occurred to me till after reading your book which now makes things clear of what I what I would call local rationality versus global the notion yeah. that what may be good for you is not good for everyone and ultimately not good for you it, it talking about rules that we need rules but in fact in some sense it's science science is a set of rules that in principle allow us to go from the local to the global yeah recognizing oh, that people are biased and 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 science is a set of rules that eventually leads to the rational public good of, of, of understanding, but it requires it. But I was going to ask what you thought about, you know, Jonathan Roush's notion that it, and, and you sort of say it in the book, it's a science requires a social, it's a social discipline by, by necessity, because each player in science is not a, is not a purely rational uh, operator. Namely, you need other people to check your rationality. Then the rules the rules provide that method of checking so that, you know,
1: ultimately what comes out is a collective good. Oh, exactly. And in, and in fact, I uh, uh, come to a similar conclusion to Jonathan Rauch's and and uh, his book came out after rationality went to press. But uh, I would have, I, I cited an essay that he, um, uh, that, that previewed his book. And, and the idea that both he and I push is that collective rationality comes from Submitting to certain rules within certain institutions that um, filter out the vast amount of um, false belief that we all mm. uh, propose for the rare correct beliefs and, um, and that allow the ambitions of one person to counteract the ambitions of another. Now, psychologically, the, the key, the engine to this is that even though we're all subject to biases and fallacies mm. and blind spots, we're much better at pointing out other people's fallacies and biases and blind spots. And so you can harness that ability that we're, you know, we're, since we are all arguers, kind of more intuitive lawyers than intuitive scientists. Yeah. But you can put that to work if you have people criticizing each other's ideas, uh, checking each other's ambitions. And science is an example of how that, can work, at least when it works well, there should not be authority, arguments from authority in science. There should not be um, repression and censorship of hypotheses in science. There should not be... If um, only, if only. If only, right. (laughs) Uh, And the same is true of liberal democracy, Uh uh, where you have checks and balances built into the government system. And the American framers were... They didn't have the language of game theory, but they... they analyzed it in exactly the same way. They said, yeah, human beings are flawed. We all want to be right. We all want power. So the key is you have one guy's power checking another guy's power. That's our only hope.
0: Yeah, that was a game theory. It's definitely a game theory picture. Actually, with Roush, by the way, I wasn't thinking of his new book. I was thinking of the old one, Kindly Inquisitors, I think. uh, The notion of liberal science, that science itself is a liberal. it it, 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 it And liberal in the same sense as democracy, this notion that it's based, it requires that you only get to rationality by having a group being able to question each other, that really you can't expect an individual, in all, you, you can't, any individual is, is is ultimately, for the reasons we talk about, it's ultimately going to be led to local rationality and not global rationality, something they want, Some an idea that's too sacred to them to give up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and all, and all of those things are discussed in your book. Um, I, 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 the, I won't I'll, I'll avoid Hume but I want to I want to get I want to get back to the, this this um, this notion of, of sort of coordinated games and the fact that 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 the tragedy of the commons which we which you discussed very well for climate which makes me wonder since really the tragedy of climate commons is as as you kind of allude is both personal and governmental each individual has rash, uh, motivations for violating the collective rationality and each country does as well. And it, it, it makes one, when you think about that, you wonder whether, it certainly makes one, maybe not pessimistic, but it's um, it's going to be a challenge to, to work uh, that way. But, you know, in, in your, I have to say, because I, I want to get to it at least twice in your book, concepts from physics came to my mind. And, oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, because it, it's, if you think of a, a large physical system, it gets stuck in what you call local minima rather than the right. global minima. Right. and 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 the reason it gets stuck in that global minimum is just each, each atom can, or each component of that system can't go from one the the minimum to change the minimum say from a from a system where there's a twist to a system where there's no twist it, it, you can't locally do that you have to globally yeah. do that and therefore the system each atom is never is never being pushed in the direction to do to get to that global minimum and so this it's exactly, and it seems to me, to the tragedy of the commons. And so, so when we get stuck locally at a local minimum, it's it's exactly the same as a system which really could be better off and have more free energy and all the rest if it ever made the transition, and it, and it won't. the The other the other area of physics that I wanted to see if you thought was too much of a stretch um, uh, was you. You spend a lot of time on another key aspect. Of, of sort of rationality or rationality, which is risk assessment, and humans are pretty bad at that innately. Um, although one of the things that is that you do point out, which I think is really important, is that people may say they believe something, but when it comes down to the evidence of their senses, they generally c- common sense often reigns. so they with an abstract thing they may be they may be wrong. but when they you know when when you, George Bush may have said, well, maybe we should have teach both both uh, Creationism and intelligent design in in schools, but when but when the avian flu first came out, which is which was the sort of pandemic at the time, potential pandemic at the time, he said, you know, we've got to look for mutations because ultimately, you know, when it, when the danger happens, you you go to the science. But yeah. um, but when you point out when people are, are thinking about risk, avoiding loss is 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 something that they're more willing to take a risk for than than gain. And again, but, but I'm wondering if that, if that, if that's not, it seems to me that's eminently rational for a physics reason. And the physics reason is that is is entropy. Yeah. The fact, the fact that it's much harder to do good than bad in some sense is the fact that the world, you know, the natural tendency is to, is to, is to move away from that plateau to the, to the, to disorder. And so people in their lives see that it's much, much easier for a system to, to 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 go away from the the plateau and therefore that experience tells them I better it's much more important for me to avoid loss than it is to seek gain what do you think of that
1: yeah no I think that's exactly right and I think it's it it's not far from what uh, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman had in mind as the explanation for loss aversion named um, <clears throat> loss aversion being the 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 fact that people uh, that that losses are more uh, painful then gains are pleasurable and mm-hmm. people will do uh, go out of their way to uh, avoid a loss. Ultimately the, you know the ultimate loss is, is the loss of life uh, mm-hmm. is, is death and there are a lot of ways that can happen because we're very improbable c- collections of matter. We have locally fought against entropy by taking in uh, you know I- I- energy and our metabolism, and developmental processes allow our bodies to you know, hang together for a, a few decades, despite all of the ravages mm-hmm. of uh, disorder. There are just incalculably more ways for something to go wrong than to go right. Um, and so we ought to be cautious about, more cautious about the downside. And Amos himself, although I don't know if he actually appealed to uh, the, the second law of thermodynamics, but um, he once said to me, and I, I reproduce this in the book, uh, h- how much better off can you be imagined being than you are now? Uh, how much worse off can you imagine being? Um, how many really good things can you imagine happening today? How many really bad things can you imagine happening? Yeah, in each case, there's a massive asymmetry. Well, that's, uh, you know, in, in fact, fact it was the second one that, is bottomless.
0: Well, and in I fact, think it, was it's, exa- it was exactly reading that analogy of his that you did that made me think of entropy. Is
1: because yeah, no, think I think a, that I. I think it's exactly right. And I think it's probably more than an, an analogy. It might literally be true in that yeah. uh, death is, uh, you know, there there are very few ways of being alive and there are very, very many ways of being dead or, as Richard Dawkins put it, not alive.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, in fact, we locally, you know, life is locally, you know, like as these core creationists who don't understand the second law. of their yes, right. like, They think life is a violation of the second law. It's only what it's doing is locally, you know, storing energy eventually, you know, in, in, at the expense of the environment. And, and, right. and so, you know, well, and so, and, and, and eventually it goes back to the environment. That's the, and that's death.
1: Ashes that's, to ashes. Yeah. Ashes, to ashes.
0: But yeah. I'm going to avoid loss because I'm going to lose you in two or three minutes. Oh yes. Okay. And, and um, I, so, you know, in spite, there's just so much I would love to talk to you about. And well, we'll talk privately, but Maybe we'll do it again sometime because the, there's just so it's, I mean, everything you write is rich, but this book is, as I say, it's provoked so much thought, but I want to go to the end of your book, because ultimately there's two, there's two quotes I want to read. If you'll, and which I think will get us to the end. Um, I'd seen to me near the end, you say the ultimate explanation for the paradox of how our species could be both so rational and irrational is not some bug in our cognitive software. There's the, the Steven Pinker optimism there. It's not that we're inherently irrational. It's rather, it lies in the duality of self and other. Our powers of reason are guided by our motives and limited by our points of view, which is really seems to me the modern, which is, if I thought of it, I think is the thesis in some sense. If I had to distill the, the, the thesis for your book, I might say that. And I might say another way of saying that would be that reason is a slave to our passions. Do you think it's a different, it's a modern way of expressing that very point? Um, hmm. Not am not, not, not sure. Okay. Well, think about it. Anyway. Okay, it I will think. About, I will. Because, I will think about it. Yeah. Because I mean, basically, you know, I I think the point of the book is that we're not innately irrational, and here's all the components of rationality. And sometimes we abuse them, and sometimes we're just we we, for various evolutionary reasons, rationality may not be a good thing again locally, but but yeah. but once again, it's this competition of what I I guess I I keep thinking of local versus global, and that's what I take out of the book is that. When human beings are appear to be irrational, it's not that there's no reason involved. It's that the reason may not um, may not um, may be guided by passion or or momentary circumstances rather than what ultimately, if if you've looked far enough
1: ahead, would be for your own and society's good. Yeah, it's often you apply uh, rational means to an irrational end, irrational in the sense that it is incompatible with other goals that you want to attain. Um now there are some times when you know you just have brain a brain freeze when you you really just screw up. So I mean that can happen. It's not was true by definition. (laughs) You can never be irrational then that would be kind of you know circular vacuous. So, you know, we do all have moments where we thought, oh, my God, how did I yeah. you know, do something so stupid? And that, you know, that happens. Yeah, sure. Uh, exactly. and, then the other, and then the other reason is that, that of course, the, the tragedy of the rationality commons, that often what is rational for each individual is not rational for everyone acting together. OK, le- and let me read the last sentence of your book, because I think it's a
0: good way to end this. And, and, and I am aware of your time. We are a species that's been endowed with an elementary faculty of reason and that has discovered formulas and institutions that magnify its scope. They awaken us to ideas and expose us to realities that confound our intuitions, but are true for all that. that. And to me, that I mean, that's your ultimate optimism and why you're a scientist as well as I'm a scientist. The real, you know, the end of the book is why, you know, why is rationality good? It's not just to make our society better and happier, but, but, but using those tools appropriately. And the fact that we as a human species have developed rules like science, allow us to make the to explore the world and discover things we would never know otherwise and for me and i think for you that's really the greatest good i mean the fact that we can, is. yeah and i think and and so i'm great i found that a, a really important thing because that's really the greatest goal of rationality it's to allow us to develop something that allows us to discover things that intuitively we would never have understood otherwise yes. and that's one of the wonderful things that you do in your books i try in my own work, and it's, I don't think, one of the reasons we're both scientists and one of the reasons I so enjoy discovering new things that may not be intuitive by listening to you. So thank you so much, Stephen.
1: Hey, thank you so much, Lawrence. It was, as always, a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Okay, you take care. Have a good you day. Too. Okay, bye-bye.
1: I hope you enjoyed
0: today's conversation. You can continue the discussion with us on social media and gain access to exclusive bonus content by supporting us through Patreon. This podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit originsprojectfoundation.org.